We're women. We're moms. We're Muslims. And we're talking about sex. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast. So for everyone that's joining us now, uh, I'm on live with the uh, esteemed author, Mr. Habib Akande. I'm so excited he's here. He is a British Nigerian writer, sex educator, and historian. He's the author of seven books on race and sex in African and Muslim cultures. His main research interests include women's sexual rights, erotology, and female orgasm in Islam and African cultures. He studied Islam at Al-Azhar University in Egypt and has given workshops on sexual consent and the clitoris in the UK, France, the US, and Brazil. So welcome. So excited to have you on. And um, so maybe we can start off by you telling me what uh, your inspiration was. For My inspiration to, to... To study and to write these books on uh, female sexuality, female pleasure in Islam, erotology. Right, I'll try and keep it brief. Um, I was, I was, I'm a Muslim, alhamdulillah, born into a Muslim household. Um, when I graduated from university, um, or I think in uni in America you call it, refer to it as college, my undergraduate, I wanted to learn more about Islam because I really wanted to understand Arabic and understand from the sources as opposed to interpretation, so to speak. So I went to, after I graduated, to, within like, I think three weeks of graduating from university college, I went to Egypt um, where I first started studying Arabic and learned a little bit about Islam from some teachers out there. Then I enrolled in the Al-Azhar High School because I wanted to understand more about Islamic law and the Quran and Islamic history. And I spent a year and a half in the university. Um, and whilst I was there studying, um, I came across a number of Arabic works written by Muslim scholars dating back to like from the 9th century up until the 16th century, speaking about sex, intimacy, the importance of men pleasing their wives, and women's right to sexual climax. And I was quite surprised by this because in my previous years in, in the UK, I never heard, I don't think I came across a khutbah or a lecture speaking about the importance of men satisfying women and women's right to sexual fulfillment. Oftentimes you hear about men's right to sexual pleasure and the, and the wife is supposed to do X, Y, and Z in, in the bedroom, but you don't really hear about the intimacy rights that women have over men and the fact that there were a number of pre-modern scholars that were encouraging men and teaching men not only about the female anatomy, but how to satisfy women. So again, for me, that was I was bewildered by that and, and I thought, okay, this would be really interesting. I'm sure many English-speaking audiences will, would like to hear about this. So that's why I went about um, starting to start, to start translating some of those works mm -hmm. and then I thought it might be good to maybe do like a modern rendition. So rather than just translate one particular book, a number of the books that I came across, like for example, Imam al-Siyuti, who's a well-renowned prominent scholar that many people have heard of, but many people don't know that he wrote over 20 books about sex and intimacy and erotology. Another scholar, Imam al-Jahid, as well from the 9th century, he wrote many books about sex. And what I loved about the pre-modern Muslim scholars is that their writing style, they use anecdotes, they use like, like where they were talking about stories with, with humorous stories with moral undertones. It wasn't just dry, step by step, this is what you're supposed to do in a bedroom, so to speak, or, or rulings. Because oftentimes, unfortunately, when we hear about these topics in the Muslim community, it's just halal, haram, halal, this is what you can and can't do, or just focusing on sexual health. Whereas they had, um, I would say, a personality in these books. Because again, it was not only educational but it's also quite entertaining as well and that's kind of like my style in terms of I like to learn but also I like to 
I like to laugh and, you know, and, and I think that's one of the best ways of kind of entertaining people where, and again, these books were written to adults as well. It wasn't like, because oftentimes, I'm not sure how it's like in the, in the US, but in the UK, oftentimes when we think about sex education, you think about sex education for children or for adolescents, whereas this was sex education for adults, mm. whether they were married, unmarried, um, and, and, and um, otherwise. So for me, again, I thought this would be really interesting to kind of translate some of these books. Um, it took me <laughs> from the book, from starting initially the research, actually the publication of the book, 10 years of research, and then that culminated in my book, um, A Taste of Honey, Sexuality and Erotology in Islam, which again, it's just delving into so many um, issues in, in pertaining to sex and intimacy, but putting particular focus on the importance of women's sexual fulfillment um, and the female orgasm. That came out in 2015. Um, after that book came out, okay, funny enough, it wasn't as well received as I probably thought it would be in the Muslim community. Um, <laughs> just and that was my fourth book. I've written a previous book on race and and the, um, and anti-black racism uh, in Islam. Um, so I was quite surprised that it, it didn't really really receive much attention. It might be because the book I can probably show you is quite a thick book. It's like three hundred odd pages. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's a new, yeah. <laughs> okay, so maybe that it, the reason maybe because it's quite dense and again, again because I wanted to and I was quoting a lot of scholars, different references from different scholars, both from the Quran, the Hadith, and again, like I said, not only Muslim scholars but also non-Muslim sources as well. And that was the way. Um, so the the study of sex and um, desire in Arabic is known as ulm al meaning the the study of sex or erotology. And they not only, they derive their sources, not only from the Quran, the prophetic traditions, the hadith, but also the knowledgeable people of their time, like this, the medics. So whether it's from the ancient Romans, whether it's from ancient Greeks, whether it's from the ancient Indians, like the Kama Sutra, the Muslim scholars at, at that time, again, like I said, primarily between the 9th and 16th century, they were like, you could say, social commentators of their time. So like modern day sexologists. So that was something that, I wanted to show that, but also speak about obviously modern contributions that people have had and issues that might interest a contemporary reader. Now, like I said, when the book came out, it wasn't probably as well received by the Muslim community as I thought it would be. Funnily, funnily enough, it was received. I received more interest from non-Muslims who were studying Arabic erotic literature and things like that. And I gave a couple of presentations in France and other places where they were more look they were more interested and fascinated in it from an academic perspective. Um and then again I'm just fast forwarding because I wrote a couple of other books subsequent to Ace Taste of Honey, but then I released another book called Kunyaza, which was um a book about an ancient African an ancient African technique teaching men how to how women can squirt orgasm in a bedroom. Right, that book. So that book was generally for a wider readership. It wasn't concentrated at Muslims. <coughs> excuse me. And then what happened was a lot of Muslims... Excuse me, I need a drink. That's what happens when you talk too much. <clears throat> a lot of Muslims wanted to read Kunyaza, was interested in it. And I was like, okay, so... You're interested in Kunyaza, but I wrote a book about Muslim sexology, but it was like no one was interested. Um, and then I, and then a lot of people asked me Islamic-related questions that I already answered in the Taste of Honey. So then I thought, okay, let me then... And then when I looked back at a Taste of Honey, I think one of the things that maybe put a number of people off is that it's very thick and it can be quite difficult to read. Um, so then I thought, okay, let me then 
do a more summarized, um, concise book that's mainly pertaining to women's issues, like women's sexual rights and female orgasm in both Islam and Muslim cultures. Um, and then that was the book, um, Women of Desire kind of thing. So, um, yeah, so my, my passion, the reason why I'm writing about it is because, like I said, for some reason, well, we might be able to elaborate a little bit later, but I think a lot of Muslims are uncomfortable with the topic um, about sex when it become, when it pertains to women, where you see many, you know, events and lectures speaking about porn addiction and how men, you know, need to, about porn addiction and the issues that men are going through. But very often we hear about events or talks about the female orgasm or the importance of the clitoris or understanding the female anatomy and teaching men um, the importance of ensuring that women are sexually satisfied, ensuring that they're creating a safe space where women feel comfortable. Even speaking about issues like female genital mutilation, female circumcision, that does happen in the Muslim communities. But for whatever reason, a lot of, this might be controversial saying this, but I think a lot of Muslim speakers, scholars and what have you have done somewhat of a disservice by not addressing this topic because it's spoken about. I mean, it's, it happens a lot, but we don't really want to talk about when it happens, when it's issues pertaining to men kind of thing. Um, so, so that's why I thought, okay, let me start trying to... But that being said, there are a number of people doing great works, especially women in particular, and I thought, okay, it'd be good to kind of highlight their contribution as well, because we often hear about the contributions that Muslim men have made in history. And we can talk about Al-Ghazali and Al-Suyuti, like I mentioned earlier, and Jahi, they wrote about sex and intimacy. But what about the female sex educators? Because there were many female sex educators, even in early Islam, and many people aren't aware of it. So one example, like Hub al-Madaniya, who was a 7th century sex educator, an Islamic um, intimacy, you could say expert and authority. And she taught both men and women about sex, intimacy, and how to satisfy your spouse. And she she was um, of the generation of the early companions, not the not the generation of the Prophet Sallallahu but the generation after that. So she was, um, and she's there's a number of scholars that spoke about her in their books in the ninth century up until like like I said the fourteenth century, and they spoke about not only her knowledge, but um, her, her 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 frankness in terms of dealing with men in terms of, and she got married a couple of times, but there was no shame attached towards her. So again, I wanted to show that a lot of these. You know, because um, alhamdulillah, now there's more Muslim women that are speaking and teaching people about sex and intimacy. This isn't new to, in, in Islamic history. Um, so that's why I thought, okay, first it might be good to kind of document it um, because hopefully it'll be something that is beneficial not only not only for people of our generation, but generations to come. Um, and I think sometimes it's, the written word is more effective than someone who's speaking because what happens is everyone looks at that person. Whereas when you're putting something down in paper, people can read it and then obviously check the references and then do their own research and then hopefully be empowered or inspired to kind of maybe do something themselves or do some of their own style. Whereas if I'm just always the, the, the person speaking, I don't want to be known as the only person speaking about this topic because there's many people doing great work in different fields um, and we all got a place to kind of contribute and kind of highlight not only and the, the problems, because I think a lot oftentimes we speak about the problems, but also about you could say the solutions or the the benefits or the pleasures of sex and intimacy again, especially for women and how men could understand that they they've got a part to play in that. It's excellent. Thank you for that. So you know, I I was thinking as you were uh, talking about um, the taboo, right? So why do you think that there is such a huge taboo 
in our communities, in our Muslim community, to talk, to educate, to even speak about it? I think um, one of the biggest contributory factors was, or is the fact that after it was colonized um, by the Europeans in the 19th, 20th century, um, many Muslim cultures, communities, we adopted a Christian, European, Victorian understanding about sex and intimacy. Even though, even how sex is referred to in the, in the Western world, in English speaking countries, sex is often like dirty, it's nasty. This, a lot of this, came from Christianity or, or Christian Victorian, shall I say, where sex was seen as just an act for procreation. And again, if you look at pre-modern Muslim communities, that wasn't the understanding. The, 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 one of the primary aims or goals of sex was mutual pleasure for both the man and the woman. Whereas nowadays, we've adopted an understanding, again, in Muslim communities that sex is just for procreation or it's just for the man's rights. And oftentimes, unfortunately, a lot of women feel that sex is, 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 isn't even an act that they should enjoy. Um, so again, I think we've adopted, that's definitely influenced the way a lot of Muslim speaking, um, a lot of Muslim majority countries and cultures, we understand sex and intimacy. Um, and I think, um, even I'll say this as a man, there's too many men speaking. Because naturally, like as, as human beings, we've all got a blind spot, right? So obviously as a man, there's certain things naturally I always will see first and foremost from a male perspective. And it might take me a while to appreciate or understand something from a woman's perspective unless someone brings it to my attention. And the same way with women, that naturally women will see things from a, a woman or female perspective. And I think the fact that most of our, whether it's lectures, talks or information that we gather or that we watch, even if it's by way of films, you know, movies, books, popular culture, even porn, it's generally from the male gaze or the male perspective. So our understanding about sex and intimacy and pleasure is often generated from how men view it. So there isn't much scope for to, un to, to appreciate sex from the woman's perspective. So it's not as holistic as maybe it should be. Whereas, like I said previously, or in pre-modern times, a lot of those early Muslim scholars that I mentioned, like Al-Suyut al-Jahid and others, they cited women as teaching them as well. It wasn't just group of men writing books and just saying this how to please women and then writing for other men. They were citing women. So so that so the for me, the depth of their books was not it was the fact that it wasn't just coming from a male source, it was coming from different sources. Yes, it was a man writing, but he was getting he was gathering information from different sources, both from both from men and women, from different cultures as well. And I think maybe that's now and, and as well sex is a taboo in Muslim communities, I wouldn't say it's a ta taboo in all Muslim communities because because obviously we know um, we're not a monolith and there are some communities who are more forthcoming to speak about this topic um, than others. And that's understandable. And, I, and I'm not saying that everyone should have the same, the, the same comfort level when we're speaking about this topic because even during the time of the Prophet, وسلم, there were some people more conservative than others, even in regards to this topic. So I'm not going to give this impression that everyone was very comfortable and open talking about sex and intimacy because there were some people that was extremely shy and uncomfortable with it and that's fine but there's also some people and some women who were very out outspoken and comfortable talking about it and vocalizing their rights from men and the prophet sallallahu did have no issue with it so from an islamic perspective it's not wrong and that's what i think should be understood if someone doesn't want to talk about it, they're uncomfortable with it that's fine that's 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 okay i'm not forcing on someone but unfortunately people have got this understanding or misunderstanding that even to talk about even to understand or to learn 
it's wrong or it's haram or it's ayyub. And, and again, these are all from cultural understandings in terms of what is understood to be um, unacceptable. And just the last thing, I think um, another contributory, contributory factor um, why I think sex topic is taboo in Muslim cultures or communities is because a number of men, I think, I don't know if we're in, I don't know if we're intimidated by female sexuality, but we're definitely concerned. I would say. Yeah. So a way to kind of deal with that is let's control it. Let's put them away because we either fear that our women will cheat on us, or our daughters may do something can disgrace us and dishonor us. So we need to kind of control it. So that's something which, even if you look at Muslim um, history, it did develop over a period of time where the women's the rights that women had even during the time of the Prophet Sallallahu it wasn't as free, you could say, as much as it was maybe in later generations because some men saw as we need to kind of curb the fitna. And even like, again, in some Muslim circles, unfortunately, women, or the word fitna is that synonymous with a woman, as if any time a woman's there, she's a fitna, she's a source of sexual temptation. And that's something that, again, is problematic because we're just looking at women that because they're a source of temptation, we need to kind of keep them away and not be allowed in a public space because they're going to they're going to um, tempt men when in reality men should men should be held accountable. It's like if you can't control yourself, then you've got the issue, not that you're trying to kind of control her and put her away. So there's a lot of yeah, they're, they're the three things that come to mind um, why the topic is taboo. But yeah, they're the, they're the three three main ones. Um, yeah, that is that is excellent. And I'm so glad you bring this up. You've brought up so many important topics, but I just want to welcome people that are just joining us now. Uh, I'm speaking with uh, esteemed author Habib Akande regarding uh, female intimacy in Islam and uh, female sexual pleasure. So, you know, I wanted to bring up the fact that, um, you know, you mentioned that it's not wrong. And I think that you know, I just started up on social media and I, and I do this TikTok and uh, so many of the comments that I get from men <laughs> is that it's wrong. It's wrong to talk about it, you know, and, and I think especially when you're trying to educate, you know, a lot of people, uh, you get that pushback, you know, especially in like the Muslim community that, it, that it's wrong to educate. And, you know, I agree with you. I, I don't think it's wrong at all. You know, there's a hadith of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu that says, you know, the um, the seeking of knowledge is an obligation upon every Muslim, be it man or woman. So, you know, it's, yeah. it's so important. And, you know, one of the first things we were taught to do was to read, right? Ikra. So, uh, you know, I agree with you 100%. Knowledge and education is so important for our communities. And uh, I think sidelining women is a, is a big problem. And just like you said, you know, we don't know our own history. And the fact that there were so many um, you said, you know, Muslim female scholars that spoke of the subject, right? But we don't know about that. And until you mentioned it, you know, I didn't know about that either. So it's, I'm so glad you're bringing all of this to the forefront. What would you say about, you know, when um, some Muslims mentioned haya, you know, that they're, oh, you don't have haya if you talk about this. What would you, how would you respond to that? Yeah, it's a very good question. So haya, um, the translation in English is either translated as meaning modesty um, or bashfulness or shame. Um, it can mean any one of the three. Now, funny enough, even during the time of the Prophet wasalam, that was used even by some people or some women, I mean, to, towards some women. So in one particular um, incident where there was a woman that offered herself in marriage to the Prophet wasalam, so she offered herself and that's something that's, again, people look at it that that's unacceptable. 
Um, and then um, Aisha, no, sorry, not Aisha, another companion, a female companion, when she saw this woman offer herself to the Prophet, she said, like, this woman's got, like, no, no shame, no haya. And her father corrected her and said, no, she liked what she saw, as in the Prophet, and she approached him, like, as in she did nothing wrong. And even Aisha, in another um, narration, she was also used to mention that when women used to offer themselves in marriage to the Prophet, peace upon him, they used to, she used to say, they've got no um, haya, or she should think that. And when the verse was revealed, when Allah said that it's perfectly acceptable for a woman to offer herself in marriage to the Prophet, and it's up to him whether he wants to accept it or not, then she realised that, no, even her understanding of haya and modesty, maybe it has to be re redefined or reframed. So I do hear this a lot. And again, this is where it comes down to, it might be cultural understandings of, of what it means to be like um, shameful or... And again, I think people weaponize that word because we know haya is from our religion, it's part of our deen, and I'm not denying that. But what is considered to be um, modest varies from culture to culture. And that's something that even with scholars, so like a famous scholar, Ibn Battuta, who was a Muslim explorer from, the, from North Africa, when he traveled to West Africa, he, he said that the West Africans, the Muslims there, had no haya, no shame because from where he was coming from, they were too free in terms of the way men and women were mixing. And then one of the sheikhs at the time, he told him, the things that you're looking at, the interaction, the gender interaction that you're seeing is like unacceptable and we lack shame. It's not an issue the way we, the way you see it. So even for a scholar, he had different understandings, different interpretations. So that's why I always try to, if someone's coming from a good place where they're really trying to understand, I'll give them some examples, obviously from early Islamic histories to understand that what you consider to be modest or shame, or that might be for you, and that's fine. But don't necessarily impose that on others. I think that's something that first needs to be understood. And then secondly, do you have an issue with the person, what they're doing, that they lack shame, or is it you yourself are uncomfortable with it? And I think oftentimes it's the person that's projecting their insecurities on, onto others. Now, if you're the recipient of this, like, for example, as a woman, and I think, unfortunately, women um, receive some of these attacks more than men, that they may be accused of, you know, lacking shame and being indecent and this and the other. I think first and foremost, even for a man to accuse a woman of, you know, like you hear some revolting things like a woman is committing all of these acts and that's haram. So if you're coming from like a so-called religious perspective and you're trying to give advice and then you're accusing and you're speaking ill of your sister like that, what religion are you following? Mm. And oftentimes what, in reality, it's not the religion that a lot of these men are worried about is their own like pride or their own uncomfortability that maybe they're seeing a woman that turns them on or arouses them. And that's the reality. Forgive me if I'm saying quite, you know, straight to the point, but that's ultimately what it is. And then they'll use the religion to kind of like, oh, you know, this is the reason why we need to, you're causing too much fitna. But a lot of these same men, they won't have the same level of, um, uh, protection or jealousy, so to speak, or encouragement when they're trying to help women, to encourage women to learn about their religion or even to pray. Yeah. So even when we look at the topic of like Muslim women's dress, the hijab, these are all in the last maybe you could say 100 years, you find so many books, so many lectures about this topic. Go prior to the 18th century, you won't find many books. I'm not to say, I'm not saying this was a, a topic, but it, it didn't, it, it, people was as obsessed by it as they are now. Mm. Like the way a lot of Muslims seem to be obsessed by the exterior as opposed to the interior. Everything is about how big your bed is. Where is your thobe? Is your trousers up to your ankles? The Muslim women's dress. Everyone is obsessed by that. And unfortunately, even 
you know, you could say um, practicing Muslims or whatever. It's like that is the that's how you judge someone as opposed to their character, because you know that someone's character is harder to kind of. If you want to see if someone is like a good person, that's harder to prove because that would be over a period of time and when the person is tested. Whereas to see if someone is a quote unquote good Muslim, let me just see if they've got the Muslim outfit. You know, and, and again, I always push back to when people talk like that, which religion are, are you, is that coming from the Quran and the lifetime of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, or is that something that you're quoting certain scholars at a certain period of time that are saying certain things? So I think first and foremost, I think it's important to equip ourselves with sound knowledge. And again, we're all adults, at it? Well, I'm assuming everyone that's listening is an, is an adult. So, and we've got our mind to think. So I, I just have, I just think, especially for the women, because women obviously unfortunately also are often on the end of these attacks to first um, empower themselves with obviously sound Islamic knowledge from the Quran and the early generation of the Prophet. I mean, early generation of the Muslims, especially the Prophet وسلم, And then hopefully that can um, help them in terms of dealing with some of these. Yeah. That was, that was excellent. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, was, that screen was a little frozen, but that was, that was uh, amazing. That was a great response, and I appreciate that. <clears throat> I think that's fantastic. I actually want to get into the, the meat of the subject, though, and uh, I'm so interested in finding out more about your books, and um, you talk a little bit about uh, female orgasm. Actually, your whole, one of, a lot of your books, actually, are dedicated to female uh, orgasm and uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that and uh, the books and you know what you cover in the books regarding that yeah I would say um, it's not a lot of my books aren't particularly um, about the female orgasm they're about female pleasure yeah and the reason why I'm differentiating between the two is because female orgasm we know it's for many people it's like the the sexual climax or really intense and pleasurable sexual experience that one um, um, that one can obviously experience. But sexual pleasure is more it's more broader term, and it's something that not because there's a lot of people, especially unfortunately a lot of women, who find a difficulty to orgasm, whereas a lot of people have the ability to experience pleasure, and that's why I generally prefer to focus on sexual pleasure as opposed to orgasm because when people go into sexual encounters and they make orgasm the goal it can be quite difficult and I, think, I don't think sex should be goal orientated whereas if we look at sex as it should be pleasure orientated and it's more holistic then whether you have an orgasm or not if you come out of that, that sexual encounter where you're sexually fulfilled and sexually satisfied then it's good whereas if you make the goal an orgasm and you don't achieve the orgasm then you may feel that this sexual encounter is not good sex and I think that's why although I'd sometimes use female orgasm and I explore the different types of orgasms that a woman can experience I try and make that clear that that's not the emphasis so even when we speak about um, like the orgasm gap referring to the fact that men generally orgasm more frequently than women during um, heterosexual encounters and a lot of there is a lot of emphasis or onus um, placed on women or even men to try and close this orgasm gap so men so women can orgasm just to speak of his men i'd prefer to kind of refer to it as a pleasure gap like let's try and make sure 
women are enjoying sex just as much as men as opposed to having orgasms just as much as men because in reality for us men to climax or to orgasm is very easy i mean it doesn't take much to get us turned on it doesn't t- take much to get us turned off basically whereas with women it's obviously it's and obviously it varies from woman to woman but it's 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 a more delicate or more complex experience and i think if we put the emphasis or like the goal as being orgasm then i think a lot of people maybe find, can find that they're having satisfying sex, but because it's not orgasmic, then they might feel that they're not having good sex. So um, I just wanted to kind of explain that difference. So in terms of um, my books that deal with the orgasm, so in my book, Kunyaza, I lay out 14 types of um, orgasms that a woman can experience. Mm. Um, and I touch and I go into more detail when I do like webinars and things like that. But um, obviously, most people are familiar with the vaginal orgasm, like an orgasm that a woman can experience via penetrative intercourse. Now, although that's in popular culture and in our modern day sexual script, that's kind of seen as how everyone orgasms. In reality, most men orgasm that way, whereas with women, maybe like 25%, according to some studies, frequently orgasm via penetrative sex. Um, and also, I want to show that there's different types of orgasm, like the cl- clitoral orgasm, which for most women, it's the most effective way to climax I by clitoral stimulation. And then it's important that both men and women understand what is a clitoris, where the clitoris resides, and how you can stimulate it, not only directly, but indirectly. And um, so I touch on the clitoral orgasm, and I touch on even some issues that some women have in terms of reaching climax or reaching orgasm via clitoral stimulation, especially for women who have undergone um, genital cutting, like female genital mutilation or female circumcision, because there are some, especially Western sex educators, when they speak about FGM, because I don't think they're as familiar with it, they will say some incorrect things. Like if a woman has been, and I'm not, and I don't endorse FGM, I'm just, just before anyone thinks I, I do what I'm going to say. A circumcised woman or woman who has undergone FGM still can experience an orgasm. So the fact that, and even when people say her clitoris has been cut off, um, therefore she can't experience an orgasm that's incorrect because even the woman who has experienced the most severe form of FGM like type 3 in the fibrillation where the vagina is sewn up and the clitoral gland is removed it's only I'm not saying it's only but it's the clitoral gland that's removed not the internal clitoris so like we know the majority of the clitoris sits inside the woman's um, um, anatomy um, body um, beneath the labia and that can still be stimulated even if the clitoral glands has been removed so when and the reason why I, and i was speaking to a nigerian sex educator recently she was talking about um about not only her experience being circumcised but trying to change the belief systems of women who have been circumcised or undergone fgm because they've been taught or some of them have been taught that they can't climax so if you've been taught that you can't orgasm because you've undergone like circumcision or fgm you might not allow yourself to get there so that's why she was talking about before talking about techniques and things like that it's important to change the belief system of some women who've been incorrectly taught that they can't climax so that's why i think when people we need to be very careful when, when we're speaking about such topics because yes we know the clitoris is the powerhouse of female sexuality is most important or one of the most important sexual organs and there's so much emphasis that's placed upon it nowadays but then you also have to remember there are millions of women who have who their clitoris has been cut but they still can orgasm but and especially because i get messages also from men who are asking again okay if my wife has been circumcised can she still experience an orgasm can she still squat and she the answer is yes to both of those questions but 
you may need to be a bit more patient. The same way if a woman has undergone or form any form of sexual um, abuse or trauma, again, you may need to be a bit more patient. You may need to understand that there may be certain acts or trigger words that may turn her off or, you know, so that's why it's been more empathetic and sympathetic to women. But that's why, again, I, I think why it's important that more cross-cultural sexologists um, and even faith-based um, sexologists and erotologists are also talking about these things that maybe um, mainstream Western um, sex educators aren't kind of familiar with and aren't aware of. So that's some of the stuff that I kind of talk about. Um, yeah, so yeah, so some of the other types of orgasms that a woman can experience, I mentioned clitoral orgasms, we've got blended orgasms, G-spot orgasms, kunyaza orgasms, the mental orgasm where a woman can climax without any physical touch at all. Um, breast or nipple orgasm. So I'll, I'll go through a range of these and different ways that a woman can experience an orgasm via um, different forms of techniques. And obviously, first and foremost, and this is something which I try to explain to men, the importance of making sure that the woman mentally is ready to climax before you think, or any form of physical play. Before you think about touching her body, you need to make sure mentally that she is in the right frame of mind psychologically. So, And this is something that I think gets lost on a lot of men when women talk about the importance of feeling safe in the bedroom, that some men think, oh, what do you mean safe? Like, I locked the door. And it's like, no, it's not that. <laughs> or financially, like, I've got a million pounds or a hundred thousand pounds in my bank account. No, it doesn't mean that. It means that she feels emotionally secure. She feels, com she feels comfortable in your presence. And that's something that I think a lot of men, maybe we do not, um, maybe because obviously we've been miseducated by from porn or, from the bravado of our male friends, that's something we don't place much emphasis on. So when women are talking about emotional intimacy, because that vocabulary is not something generally men men use, it kind of gets lost on us. So that's why that's something that I also try to bring in. But speaking about like the psychology of desire and the mental foreplay, a lot of men because we're generally generally quite goal orientated, we can't that, that kind of gets lost on a lot of them. So it's just that's that's also something that I try to cover. Um, in my books, especially Kunyaza and uh, A Taste of Honey. Yeah. You know, you bring up so many good points that it's <laughs> tough to um, talk about all of them. But yeah, absolutely. You're talking about making a woman feel safe, consent. All of those things are so, so important, right? To having a meaningful relationship with your spouse and uh, how to, you know, make it comfortable and a safe environment uh, for that woman to orgasm. You're absolutely right. Um, you know, I was wondering also, you mentioned a little bit about the G spot, but then you, in your books, you mention it as the K spot. Maybe you can speak to that a little bit. Sure. So the K spot, I refer to the, I refer to the clitoris, both the, um, so I refer to the clitoris as the K spot and I refer to the K spot. So this is what, if anyone's wondering, this is what a clitoris looks like, the full anatomy of a clitoris. And obviously we know that it sits in majority of it sits internally and only like a little bit sits, you can see externally of, of, on a woman's body. But I refer to the entire clitoris as a case spot, paying homage to the Kunyaza tradition and because it kind of resembles a case spot or like a wishbone. Um, and the reason why I refer to it as a, as the case spot is to, to let people know, especially both men and women, that it's not just one particular area that you kind of need to focus on. We know with the G spot, obviously, since it was coined in, in, the, um, in the 80s, that everyone is looking for this like this so-called magical spot, when in reality, what is commonly, the area that is referred to as the G-spot, which is like a couple of inches on the 
upper interior wall of the vagina. That is part of the, like the clitoris. It's part of the inner clitoris. So, but because again, a lot of people are just kind of looking for this particular spot and it's important that people understand that for some women, that G-spot area, shall we call it, is the most sensitive part or the most, um, is, is the area that they're most receptive to in terms of sexual stimuli. For other women, it might be, it might be the, um, the clitoral glands. For other women, it might be indirect stimulation. So I wanted to kind of make sure or to try and help people that they're not just concentrating on one particular area because not every woman, the G-spot is the most sensitive or, or the most, or the easiest way to climax. And that's something that popular culture, following obviously the publication of um, Beverly Whipple's book and naming the G-spot and then even in music, songs and TV programs, everyone's obsessed with the G-spot. Now everyone's trying to find this G-spot rather than finding the most erogenous zone for that particular woman because every woman is different. For one woman, it might be the G-spot. For another woman, it might be the um, the clitoral glands. For another woman, it might be the Mount Venus, which a lot of people don't know, but those indented marks on the lower back of a woman's body. For some women, it's the inner fight. But if you're a man, um, or even a woman, but if you're a man and you're trying to understand your woman's body and you're trying to understand and exploit with her, then you will find what is the most erogenous zone for her, not for every other woman. So I think that's why... I wanted to call it a case spot so people can explore the other parts of the clitoris that that she might be more receptive to experiencing um, sexual stimuli as opposed to that particular area which is in the vagina in the anterior wall of the vagina. Mm -hmm. You know that's uh, that's so important to realize is that the what you said about the clitoris, right? The, the way that I describe it is like the what we see of the clitoris is just like the tip of the iceberg, right? What you said, it, most of it sits inside of that pelvic anatomy. And really it's just the tip of it that we see. Yeah. And yeah, and just in addition to the clitoris, <clears throat> so even like with things, I'm sure you've probably come across with the work you know, that you do. Um, but with the, um, what's that condition? Um, clitoral phimosis, where, the clitoral hood, because this is something that, again, a number of men and women, unfortunately, I'm not aware of. When a woman's, because um, I was having a, a workshop and I was speaking about smegma, and then um, someone said, oh, yeah, that's just something that happens to men. And I was like, no, women ha can produce smegma as well. And mm -hmm. again, just for the benefit of anyone listening, smegma is like the oily or like dead skin cells, which um, kind of can it kind of um, accumulate for men under the foreskin if a man is, is not circumcised. And for women, for women, um, even on the things like the external labia, the the, the yeah. fold, the yeah. or it can accumulate under the clitoral hood. And then for some women um, who have um, a number, uh, a lot of smegma, what can happen is that their clitoral hood, if it becomes stuck to the clitoral glands, mm -hmm. and we know obviously when a woman is aroused, the clitoral hood naturally retracts, and it's easier for um, the clitoral glands to be stimulated, the clitoris to be stimulated. Now, if a woman has, for example, a lot of smegma because it hasn't been cleaned or what have you, um, she can develop a condition called a clitoral phimosis or clitoral adhesions. And that's quite popular. Like I was listening to one uro urologist and she mentioned, I think between 22% or 33% of women suffer from this particular condition. So if a woman is suffering from this particular condition and obviously any form of, even when she's aroused, any form of touch on the clitoral area is going to hurt her, she may feel that, like the clitoris is not a, an erogenous zone that works for her, but it, it might, the solution can be very easily fixed as in, no, it may be that you might need to clean the smegma. And obviously for some women who suffer from that condition, 
and it's quite severe. Um, there are some like clitoral hood reduction surgeries and other things, but the point is that there's a lot of people that understand the female anatomy, both men and women alike, unfortunately. And more emphasis um, is placed on understanding male anatomy and women's anatomy. When we speak about reproduction, we want to understand that. Procreation, let's understand it. But when it comes to pleasure, and this particular, particular urologist was saying that there seems to be a reluctance amongst um, medical doctors um, that's why I'm glad of the work that you're doing to kind of speak about the, that women's right to pleasure and things like that. It's not just about the vagina being a birth canal, it's also an, uh, an organ where she can experience um, sexual pleasure. So um, that was something that, again, I don't think a lot of people are kind of even aware of it yeah. when we speak about the clitoris, that it may not be that it's not working or it may be that it might be a case of like she might be suffering from that condition, clitorifimosis. Right, right, right. So important. Um, you know, I'm wondering if you can just talk to us a little bit about the difference between female ejaculation, squirting, and, you know, you mentioned a little bit of uh, urinary incontinence that some women can experience, you know, when they orgasm. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure, sure. So um, the difference between those three um, expulsions or free fluids, um, which I'll touch on in, in Kunyaza. So, Generally speaking, female, I know people often use the term female ejaculation squirting synonymously, but they're, they're two quite different phenomena, as in female ejaculation generally refers to a small expulsion of fluid that emanates from the urethra, basically the pee hole, and when a woman is sexually aroused or stimulated, whereas squirting is generally referred to as a large gush of fluid that again emanates or um, expels from the urethra, so basically it's the, the pee hole. Um, and then obviously there's urinal incontinence, whereas where a woman is um, involuntary, involuntary urinating. Um, and that comes from like the, the, the pee hole as well. Now, obviously, and unfortunately, especially if a woman, um, when a woman is ready to squirt or ejaculate, the experience and sensation that she feels is similar to when she wants to urinate. So that's why there's some women, especially if they're not aware or understand their body, their, their sexual arousal, when they're um, during um, a sexual encounter, they have that feeling where they want to squirt or ejaculate. They feel like they're going to pee, I urinate, and then they stop. They hold it, they, they stop, as in they um, don't allow themselves to let go. They might even go to the bathroom and, and things like that. So this is something. And because of the, the shame, especially in the West, that's placed on squirting and female ejaculation, a lot of women don't allow themselves to let go. Whereas, and that's why I wanted to show you the Kunyaza book and the, and the tradition in Rwanda and Eastern Central Africa, where it's practically, um, where it's commonly practiced, that they didn't have this cultural shame attached towards female ejaculate. That if a woman squirts or she ejaculates, and that because of that, again, the belief system was that women's sexual fluids were normalized. There was nothing wrong with it. So a woman was able to be comfortable with her, with her partner. Whereas if women have been told that you know, it's pee, it's urine, even during sexual encounters when she's in the throes of the light, she's naturally going to hold herself back so she can't even allow herself to, to fully be free. And this is where even I think men, we can play a part by obviously first educating ourselves, understanding the difference and then also allowing um, women to feel comfortable about their bodies and also to literally let them let, let themselves go and don't kind of feel like you need to kind of please them or please their body. So... It's something that uh, with the book I wanted to show because I, I delved into a number of the research because there are a number of research studies that they go into detail in terms of the difference between um, the female ejaculate fluid and the squirting fluid and 
urinal incontinence and things like that. But I just wanted to show that for like the academics or the researchers who are really passionate about it. But for the layperson, I didn't want to spend too much. I don't, I don't generally go into too much detail with that because for me, do I look at if a woman has told you that this experience is different to urine, that's enough for you to believe her. You don't need, for me, why do you need, um, um, especially it's generally a man in some laboratory to kind of validate a woman's sexual experience. You don't have that with men. Like if someone were to say like pre-cum, and we know there's probably some small trace of urine in there. Why is it that every time if it's, when it's women's sexual experiences, we need to kind of validate it with science? Whether it's a female orgasm, does it exist? Is it hysteria? Is she an infomania? Whether it's female ejaculate, is it a myth? There's a lot of, um, and, that, and that's one of the problems. Like again, there's a lot of like skepticism surrounding women's um, experiences or sexual experiences. And oftentimes, if you really want to know the answer, you just have to ask the woman herself. Yeah. And that's why as much I'm kind of showing the research and the history and this and the other, it's not I'm showing science to kind of prove that female ejaculate exists or squirting exists or orgasm exists. No, the, the testimony of a woman should be enough. But because unfortunately we've grown up to not believe or not listen to women, it's like we need science or something to kind of prove that actually no, by the way, female ejaculate is exists. And I also wanted to demonstrate, even when we look at some of these studies, where they kind of speculate whether the ejaculatory fluid, whether it's urine or not, how much traces of urine in it. The sample study is really small. Like one of the biggest um, studies that's often quote, cited, the sample size of seven women in France. And I'm, and I'm just, even that in and of itself. So you've got this sample size of seven women in France. It's ridiculously small. And then you're using the results of that to extrapolate to say, yes, this proves that female ejaculate is urine despite the fact you've got hundreds of testimonies of women that are saying, no, the smell, the taste, the feeling is totally different. Shouldn't that be enough for you to believe us? Right. Right. You know, so that, that that's the reason why I kind of speak about the studies, but to kind of, not to dis, totally disprove it, but then it's like, surely, again, the testimonies of women, shouldn't that be enough for you? No, that's that's very true, and you're absolutely right. You know, a lot of uh, people do not believe women, and that's the biggest problem, right? They also talk about that with uh, when women feel pain, right? Yeah. And we don't believe that, and uh, that's where all this maternal health crisis comes in. But um, but absolutely. So, you know, I'm wondering if um, you know you could tell us a little bit about the webinar you have coming up on March 19th. You tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So I have a webinar, 19th of March. Um, it's going to be, I think it's 8 p.m. or 9 p.m. UK time and around 4 p.m. PSC. But yeah, it's 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 on available um, in the on the bio of my Instagram page here. So it's called Loving Women and Sacred Intimacy, which is um it's going to be it's a taste of honey webinar. So this webinar will be mainly focusing on similar to kind of the topics we've covered, but obviously in more detail and giving more practical advice in terms of. Um, you could say the Muslim sexual secrets to female orgasm and women's sexual satisfaction. Um, we'll be talking about the 14 types of female orgasm, the different types of vulvas, like the nine types of vulvas, the different types of um, sexual desire response uh, um, models that both um, Muslim erotologists and, and modern sexologists have spoken about. Um, and it, it, a lot of it will be the work that I've, or what I've spoke about in A Taste of Honey, Women of Desire, will mainly be that. So sometimes I do webinars about kunyas and squirting, whereas this one, and it's mainly going to be geared to Muslims or anyone interested in Islamic sexology 
on Muslim erotology. Um, because I do webinars, like I said, for the general public, but this one I want to mainly come from like a Muslim or an Islamic perspective because um, I do get a number of questions, especially from women, where they ask questions about a lot of sexual acts or is this permissible, whether it's like female masturbation. That The fact that scholars spoke about this, many scholars spoke about this again hundreds of years ago. And again, some scholars totally against it and some scholars said they had no issue with it whatsoever. And again, a lot of people, but you don't hear about these fatwas. You know, um, even um, acts like oral sex, a lot of scholars have no issue with it whatsoever. So um, I just wanted to kind of, again, with this particular webinar, be more, like I said, Muslim-focused um, and speaking about, you could say, I don't know if you want to call it halal intimacy, but not only speaking about sexual acts, but also the importance of emotional intimacy. And because there's going to be some men, obviously, attending, and obviously there'll be women as well, so I want to make sure we speak about emotional intimacy as well because I've had some interesting attendees where people think, okay, if I'm, I've had a couple of men say, okay, if I'm giving a woman her rights, like financially providing for her, um, you know, I'm giving her clothing, I'm giving her food, why do I need, need to give her emotional support? Why do I need to give her emotional intimacy? Is that her right? And I'm just like, what kind of, yeah, like, what religion are you following? Yeah, it's just, but he was actually serious. He's like, that's not, that's not her right. If I'm giving you know, her food, clothing, and it's just like, no, it's treating someone well and you're being, not even encouraged, but instructed as men to treat our women well. If that's what she needs and that's what she wants to feel happy, then end of story. But again, we've got this, some of us have this very regimented approach towards, I don't know, like women that if I give them ABC, then that's enough and anything else that they want is like, yes, yeah, so I want to kind of demystify some of these um rights that women have which is fine for muslims to understand it because i think oftentimes unless they feel that there's some validity in the religion they what they don't want to hear it they think it's all from feminism or the west where no there were women in the past who demanded these things not only sexual fulfillment but also emotional intimacy in our tradition so i think men will probably need to um, hear about this more yeah absolutely there's there's so much cultural baggage right that we bring on to religion that uh, are sometimes it's difficult to separate the two so i'm glad that you're doing this you know i've registered i'm excited um to also hear you speak about that i'm wondering in maybe the few minutes that we have remaining if you could just talk a little bit about um maybe some takeaways for our listeners and for the people that joined in on this webinar um you know what you would advise I know oh, you didn't good... give like fatwas or anything like that, but I'm not asking for yeah, that. But, you know, maybe just that's a good... about pleasure. Um, that women should know that they're entitled to sexual fulfillment and sexual pleasure. Um, do not be afraid to vocalize your desires, especially with your spouse, because I think it's one thing having those conversations with your, you know, with your girlfriends and complaining and saying, but if you're not vocalizing and. and asking and demanding, and I'm using the word intentionally, demanding your right from your husband. It's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, for him to fulfill that. So I think we need to empower women themselves and not wait for others to empower them. And I think one way of doing that is by knowledge. Um, so you know that you're right, and so you don't feel like, you don't feel shame to ask for that. Because again, it's your right. The same way a lot of women feel um, the right to be loved, I think they also have the right to be sexually satisfied and they have the right to experience an orgasm. So 
this is something that I think women need to empower themselves with as opposed to waiting for someone else to empower them. And there is, like I said, a rich tradition in our religion of sexually empowered Muslim women. Um, and there are, you know, there are resources because a number of people say, okay, if you didn't know that before, you know that now. And there are a number of resources, um, not only books, but also people you can reach out to, women that you can reach out to, you, you can educate. So I think um, ignorance is not an excuse kind of thing anymore. Sorry if that kind of comes across quite harsh, but I just think that, you know, um, um, we have a beautiful tradition and there are resources again, so it's not a case of we can we, sh we need to kind of continue living in the darkness. Yeah, excellent. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. And uh, you coming to us all the way from the UK, you know, that's fantastic. I can't wait to hear more of your um, thoughts on the webinar on March 19th. And uh, is there a link or maybe you can put it in the chat? I don't know. Um, you go um, on there is a link. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, so on my, if you go to my page, um, and if you if you click the link on my page, it will take you to a like link tree, and then you can see, um, I think it's a second one down, but you, you can access to a Taste of Honey webinar, um, find out more if you wanted to sign up and register. So. That's great. And it is going to be recorded as well. So again, I'm not sure, again, you said people coming from different time zones, so they can, if they can't watch it live, they can obviously rewatch it, so there'll be um, recorders available. Sure, sure. Do you have any other webinars coming up um, in the year that you know? Yeah, I, I've got, I've got, um, I've, I'm scheduled to do another like four or five. So probably post Ramadan. So I'll probably go silent for Ramadan and then I'll kick off again um, probably like around um, May. Um, I'll probably do the Kunyaza webinar, some more popular kind of thing. So I'll see how this one goes. I think it's, it's always quite difficult. Um, framing like muslim sex or muslim intimacy because i think even a number of muslims are uncomfortable by it but if i just say like sex or squirting or how to please then they're more interested in it like the five love language I always i'm always like you have you happily buy a christian intimacy book which is fine you know like the five love languages but if something comes from a, like an islamic or muslim you like you just want to stay clear from that and that's something i have noticed that people were more readily would want to sign up or listen to a Kanyaza webinar. But if I were to say like an Islamic intimacy or Muslim intimacy, they'd be like, no, no, I don't, I don't want to hear that. Because again, we view sex, I mean, we view spirituality to be devoid of um, sexuality when, in, like I said, in pre-modern time, they didn't have this understanding. So it might take a while for even people to get to that understanding where no, Islam is a sex positive and a sexually empowered religion that female have the right to sexual pleasure. Because I think a lot of people have find that even difficult to kind of for that to coexist in in their minds kind of thing so but yeah i do have a few more webinars hopefully this year after ramadan excellent how about any courses that you teach or anything like that or uh, yeah i'm working on yeah that's something that's in the pipeline um yeah i'm, I'm, I'm thinking of again doing um a kunyaza um like slash masterclass webinar but i'll, I'll see how that goes i i generally um, I know it might not sound like this because I've been talking for God knows how long. I generally don't like talking for too long. So I prefer either connecting people, put books out there and then people can kind of find their way. Um, and one of the things or one of, I would say, some of the dangers of courses I find is that, especially with men, that is, I'm not telling people do this and then this will happen. I'm giving people tools, like a guide. 
So you find what works for you. The same way with my books or what I try to present in my courses is that, yes, there may be a wealth of information or wealth of techniques. So it's for you to kind of choose which works for you. Not everything will work for you. And it's not supposed to, you're not, the same way like with the Karma Sutra, you're not supposed to use it like um, bedroom gymnastics where everyone does and they want to tick off every 64 arts of, of Karma Sutra. It's not pick which works for you. And that was the, how why it was written. So that's why with courses, I'm just, I don't, because I, I, I'm not going to be giving like, promises that if you do this the woman is going to squirt gushing orgasms and if she's going to experience like, I don't want to start selling I'm not selling dreams put it that way so that's why I've, I've been holding back um, from doing the courses for a while but we'll, we'll see we'll see I might change my mind sure sure the last question I have for you before we go is uh, you have a publishing company is that correct Rob oh yes I do. yes I do so yes yeah, so after yeah sorry go on no, I was just going to say, so what types of books are you publishing? Um, is it, you know, your own brand or? Yeah, it's really my own book. So after I, um, so my first book, I went with a, a publisher and um, that's like a, probably a, well, quite another webinar. But then I realized with publishing, um, I've got my own way of marketing and I, I learned a bit about the industry and then I thought, actually, I would rather publish my own books because one of the things, um, and this is for any writer or any aspiring writers that if you're going with a publisher, you oftentimes will lose creative control in terms of the way the book is presented, the way it's marketed, even certain chapters and, and headings and stuff like that. And because I knew after my first book, I wanted to kind of start writing more about like sex and intimacy, I would want to market it myself, even like from the cover, I wanted to have creative control. Um, and obviously if you're willing to do, the hard work um, is also more lucrative as well, if I'm honest with you. So that's why I set up my own publishing company. I've not yet um, published anyone else's books, so it's just all my books. Um, but that's something that I might look into in the future as well. That's great. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Jazakallah I really appreciate your time and all of the information, and you provided us with so much knowledge today. Thank you so, so much. Um, I just want everyone to sign up for your webinar on March 19th. I think it's going to be excellent and I'm so looking forward to it. So thank you. And hopefully we'll get a chance to chat again. So thank you so much. Yeah. Appreciate it. Well,